the rest of us, let's continue on in our study of the book of Ephesians, which we've been going through, and we are leaving off towards the end of chapter 2. So if you've got a Bible, I'd invite you to open up your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2. Hopefully you brought or got some notes as you were coming in. Just help you track with me and, and where we're going in our study, maybe a little bit as a study tool there for you. So go ahead and open that up, if you will. Uh, before we start, a couple of guests that I, specific guests that I had that I wanted to invite. Uh, and one is a guest that uh, lives in Indiana, and they got on the website in Indiana of our church, and they decided, wow, I've got to go see this church. So they flew out here all the way from Indiana. I am just thrilled. Uh, and that's Janine right here. Janine. Janine, yeah. Janine's a good buddy of mine, so she called me a couple months ago, said she was going to be in town, so I promised I would say hi to Janine. So thank you very much for being our guest for just one day. Awesome. And also, I want to point out James. Uh, Rick Carboneau is a good friend of mine. We went to seminary together, and he's the one who introduced uh, the church at Morgan Hill to me, and when they asked me if I'd be interested in a church plant, and James uh, is here, our guest today. So James, if you could wave your hand. Thank you. James, good friend of Rick Carboneau. Rick Carboneau is kind of the great-grandfather behind the whole church plant, and uh, that's, he's the pastor at Berean Bible Church in Redwood City. James, thanks for being there. Give Rick a big hug for me. And a kiss. It's okay. <laughs> he won't mind. We're good, glad to have you. But other guests we have as well, like I said, if you're a guest here today, you're welcome to be a part of our fellowship meal. We're looking forward to that. So let's go ahead and look at a book of Ephesians. Just to bring you up to speed, we're going through Ephesians paragraph by paragraph of this basic letter that Paul wrote to Christians and to the church on what a church should be doing, the fundamentals of Christianity in the local church. That's why I chose this book. Also, the fundamentals of what it means to be a Christian, to know Christ, how we should, we should be serving one another as a church family. And so for the first part, we went through chapter 1 and chapter 2, verse 10 last week, we said, uh, where Paul was talking about teaching on personal salvation. And then he made a transition after talking about personal salvation knowing Christ as an individual, then he started talking about our corporate salvation we have together as a group, as a community of people. So he introduced that theme last week, chapter 2, verse 11, all the way up to 18, where Paul said that God has created a new entity, a new uh, being, a new body that did not exist in the Old Testament. God dealt primarily with the nation of Israel, but with the coming of Christ and His resurrection, the new entity and the new body, the new people that God was dealing with was the church. And anybody that comes to know Jesus Christ personally becomes a part of the church the moment they believe in Christ. And so he's talking about and introducing this corporate identity we have. Uh, in verse 15 of chapter 2, he said it was a new man. The church is a new man, a new entity, a new thing that God is doing. Specifically in verse 16 of chapter 2, he said this new man was one body, or the body of Christ. That's what we are. If you're a Christian, you're a part of a greater whole, which is called the corporate body of Christ. And God has taken Gentiles, people who are not of a Jewish background, and if you were a Gentile and you put your faith in Christ, you were added to the body of Christ. And also, if, you're, if you have a Jewish background and you believed in Christ as a Savior, the Jews were also added to this new body, this new entity called the church. And so that's what we talked about last week, how God brought together Jews and Gentiles. And primarily the Ephesians, they were Gentiles. They were not Jewish. And he was letting them know. First of all, he's reminding them that they were not Jewish. So they were without many privileges that the Jews had. And at the same time, he was encouraging them, letting them know you are now equal with believing Jews because you are one in Christ. And now let's go ahead and look at verses 19 through 22, as he continues this idea of our corporate salvation, the group salvation and the group identity we have 
because of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And really what he's talking about in 1922 is how God continues to build the church. Follow along with me as I read in chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. So then you, and he's talking about Christians, particularly the Gentiles, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So in this passage, uh, the title I put there is Under Construction, because kind of that's, those are the metaphors and the imagery that Paul is using here as he's talking to Christians. You are under construction. You are in process as a body. God is doing something. He is building something. What he's building is the church. The church is growing. On the front of your bulletin, I don't know if you noticed it, was Matthew 16, 18. That's at the end of Jesus' ministry where Jesus said just before his death, he promised and he made a prophecy and he said, I will build my church. It was yet future. And it was something Jesus was going to do. Jesus was going to build the church and it was his church. And he promised that it, was, it would continue and perpetuate because he said, I will build my church and the gates of death will not overcome it or overpower it. So the church is going to succeed. But the main thing there is that Jesus said he was going to build the church. Interesting, not many months after that, Jesus died and left. And he hadn't even really started building the church. That seems kind of weird. I'm going to build my church, and then he left. Church hadn't been built yet. Well, Jesus fulfills all of his promises, doesn't he? Yes, because he never lies. And so that was a promise yet unfulfilled, but it was going to be fulfilled. Uh, Jesus was going to follow through on his promise. He was going to build his church, and he began to build his church. And he did it in abstention. Even though he wasn't on planet Earth anymore, he followed his promise and he began to build the church. And today, 2,000 years later, Jesus is still building his church. And that is exactly what Paul is talking about here here in 19 through 22, how God was going to build his church and how God continues to build his church throughout the ages. God is building his church for 2,000 years. And I came up with just four basic principles answering the question of how God builds his church. How is God building his church? That is a very important topic. It's a very popular topic, especially in the evangelical Christian world here in America for the last 30 years. People have been interested in, how does God build his church? How does God create a huge, massive, dynamic, thriving megachurch? And people have written books. There's a gazillion books out there on how to grow a massive, or not just massive, but just how to grow a church. So we've got all these church growth books and uh, pamphlets and seminars out there because it has such been a, been a very important topic for the last 30 years in the discussion of the church. How do you build the church? Well, here's the answer right here. Here's one answer. By the way, I put under construction part one because in chapter three, Paul's going to continue this discussion of how he builds the church. And then also he dresses again in chapter four of how he builds the church. So we should take note, if you're interested in how does God build a church, And I would think that if you're a part of a church plant from scratch, you would probably be interested in how God builds a church. I know I am. As a matter of fact, I lose sleep over that question every day of my life. Oh, how does God build a church? And boy, I hope he keeps building it. Well, here's the answer. Here's part one of the answer. It's awesome. It is encouraging. So let's go ahead and look at how God builds the church. Uh, In light of the verses that I just read. Point number one, God builds the church with people, not buildings and programs. One of the distinctives of Grace Bible Fellowship that we came up with, of our distinctives, and one of the main ones was that we wanted to be uh, relationship-oriented. 
that people, individual people, come before programs and facilities. Because we believe that was consistent with the New Testament. That was consistent with Jesus and his model and his desire of how to build a church. People come first. So when it comes to building the church, we emphasize people. One-on-one individual relationships, not buildings and programs. Look at verses 19 through 22. This is talking about how God builds the church. And then take note of two things. How many programs are listed in 19 to 22? And how many key people are introduced in 19 to 22? Some of the people that are involved in church growth. True church growth. Verse 19, fellow citizens or saints, holy ones. That's people. Those are Christians. God uses people to build his church. He always has. He goes on with other people. Uh, How about Christ Jesus himself, verse 20? You can't build the church without Christ. He's the one that promised to build it. Then also in verse 20, he mentioned the apostles. They were catalysts in building the church. He mentioned the prophets. They were foundational in building the church. They still are. Other people. There's two more people in verse 22. There's the people of the Holy Spirit. Did you know that the Holy Spirit of God is a person? He is. We are people because we were made in the image of God. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is absolutely key, indispensable to building the church of God. It is His work, the Spirit of God. And then there's God the Father Himself in verse 22, a dwelling of God. So every key ingredient named in here relative to growing a church is people. It is all about people. It is God and the people He chooses to build His church. So it's not programs and buildings. I mean, what, how was God building his church and growing his church and perpetuating his church before Vacation Bible School ever existed? I mean, was it possible? Was it happening? I think it was. Or Alpha, or Billy Graham Crusades, or the Harvest Crusade, or the Purpose Driven Church, or come up with any other church growth model or program. Now, I like Vacation Bible School. It's simply a tool and a means to fulfill a biblical purpose. But if you don't have a good vacation Bible school built on the proper things, emphasizing the right things, uh, letting God be in charge as the person who builds the church, then it's an ineffectual tool. So the emphasis on building a church is on people and relationships. By the way, if you want a church growth model to follow and to emulate that was awesome, that was dynamic, that was vibrant, that quickly built a mega church then look at the first church of the New Testament. The first church of, the, of Jerusalem. Go to the book of Acts real quick because I just want to highlight a couple of key verses there. The early church was into church growth. It's not because they were manipulating it or initiating it themselves. It was what God wanted. God was the proponent of church growth and he put everything in place to make it happen, to fulfill Jesus' promise when Jesus said, I will build my church. And he did. And look at how he did it. The birthday of the church is in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. And just look at the exponential growth. God is not opposed to growth. Also, God is not opposed to megachurches either. We know that from the book of Acts. So look at Acts chapter 1 and look at the exponential church growth that happened through people, key people. Starting in Acts chapter 1 verse 2. I'll read verse 1 for the context. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Jesus began something, he didn't finish it. What was that? He began to build his church. And his people would complete the job on earth. All that Jesus began to do and teach, verse 2, until the day when he was taken up, after he had the Holy Spirit given, he gave orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. At this point, he only had 11 apostles. That's what the first church started with, was 11 people, that's it. 
And, and we get discouraged by our small numbers, people who have little churches or church plants. Well, we had more than 11 people. We had more numbers than the early church had. They started with 11 people. But then, because of the, the apostles' training, their faithfulness, their dependence upon God in prayer, their obedience, that number of 11 grew because they established their reputation. So look at verse 15 of chapter 1 in Acts. The number grew. And at this time, Peter stood up in the midst. The church was about to explode. Um, And it says, at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. There was a group of people that came around Peter. Hey, we want to be a part of a church plant. Middle of verse 15, as it was gathering of about 120 people were there. So it went from 11 to 120, just like that. And with those 120 people who all huddled around and just began praying to God, asking for His direction and leading, boom, God created the birthday of the church. And that's Acts chapter 2. That's called the day of Pentecost. And the Lord God sent down the Holy Spirit on those 120 people, and that's when the church began. That was the birthday of the church. And it started with 120 people. And then these 120 people just decided to be faithful in ministry, witness for Christ, preach the gospel, depend upon God in prayer. They didn't have any programs. They just lived their lives for Christ. And so God blessed their ministry. Look at Acts chapter 2. Early on in the church, verse 41. Peter gets up, preaches the gospel to just on the corner, a whole bunch of people willing to listen. And when he was done preaching the gospel, it says in chapter 2, verse 41, so then those who had received the word, that was the gospel that Peter just preached, they believed, they were baptized, they were saved, and there were added that day to the church about 3,000 souls. Wow, how do you baptize 3,000 people in one day? That's amazing. It must have taken all day long. So you go from 11 to 120 to bam, 3,000 people. So then these 3,000 believers, they begin to pray, be obedient, minister to one another, share the gospel, live their lives for Christ. And God continued to bless that. Look at chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 4, as the people were going out into the neighborhoods, on their jobs, influencing people, living for Christ. People noticed. People listened. Verse 4 says, But many of those who had heard the message believed. And the number of men came to be about 5,000 who were saved. That's a mega church, by the way. By definition. 5,000 people at the first church of Jerusalem was a mega church. And in chapter 4, verse 4, it says, The men who were saved and added was 5,000. Not counting the women. Because it was a simpler way to count. Oh, we've got too many people. There must be 15,000 people, plus all the kids in the nursery. What are we going to do? There must be 25. Hey, let's just count the men. (laughs) So they did. And they came up with 5,000 men. You've got a mega church. You've got a church here, 20,000 people. First Church of Jerusalem. Unbelievable. Well, how did God do that? God was building the church. Jesus was building the church. He wasn't doing it through buildings and programs. He was doing it through people and the message of the gospel. And faithfulness and prayer and the work of the Holy Spirit. Awesome. And you know what? God promises to honor that same mechanism today of building His church. And you know what? We shouldn't even be concerned about numbers. We should be concerned about one thing, and that's what? Faithfulness, isn't it? Obedience. If God wants our church to be 67 people, praise the Lord. If He wants it to be 6,700, that's His business. Because Jesus said He was building the church, not us. You know, that gives me great comfort. Actually, that's what helps me sleep at night. That's a, that's a great piece. Jesus is building the church, not me. Jesus is building the church, not the advisory council. Jesus is building the church, not our small group of saints. The Lord Jesus himself, he's the one. He's doing it through individual people. Number two, how does God build the church? Going back to Ephesians chapter 2. God is building the church through people, and relative to human people, 
here on planet Earth. Number two, the church is composed of redeemed people. That's how he's building the church. Redeemed by redeemed people, I mean saved people. That's the definition in the New Testament. When it refers to the church, primarily it's talking about people who know Jesus Christ, people who have believed in the gospel, people who are legitimately born again. They are the ones that compose the true church. Now, at any given time, you can have people who attend church who don't know Christ, who aren't born again, who are not redeemed. But that isn't what Paul is talking about in the New Testament when he's talking about the church. And those aren't the people Jesus is talking about when he says he's building the church. He is building the church with redeemed people, people who are saved. That's why he came. That's what the Gospel of Luke says. Jesus came down here, the Son of Man came down here to seek out sinners and save them so that they become redeemed. And then they become a part of his church. That's how he's building his church. It is through redeemed, born-again, believing people. That is God's design for the local church. The local church is supposed to be... uh, the, the saints gathering together to worship the same God together, singing songs from one heart to the same God as believers, as redeemed. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul emphasizes this. He's telling them, these are people who are at the church at Ephesus, and he's saying, you're no longer strangers and aliens. In other words, you're not unbelieving. You're not unsaved anymore. You are fellow citizens. And he doesn't call them just citizens of heaven. They are fellow citizens. A citizen is someone who has rights and privileges. Well, the Gentiles who believe now have rights and privileges with God and in heaven and in the church, but they're not just citizens. They're not lower-class, second-class citizens compared to believing Jews. They are equal citizens with believing Jews. That's why he said fellow citizens. Equal with believing Jews. And then look at this. In the middle of verse 19, he calls them saints, literally holy ones. Those are people that God has saved. Those are people, literally, that God has made righteous. When you believed in Christ, God made you righteous. You became sinless from His perspective. When you believed in Christ and in His gospel, and you truly became saved, you became righteous, 100%. Holy, a saint. Now, growing up Roman Catholic for 19 years, and for 19 years I was taught that in order to become a saint, number one, you don't become a saint in this life. You become a saint in the next life. Literally, that was what I was taught, and that's what I believed for 19 years until I read the New Testament. And not just anybody becomes a saint. It is hard to become a saint. You have to live a really good life, be very holy, and then after you die, then some, some miracles have to happen in light of your name. At least two, I've been told by other Roman Catholics. So two miracles have to be performed in your name after you die. Then the Catholic Church has to do a whole bunch of research and research it for years, and then you have to pass the test, and then they have to take a vote on whether they will canonize you as a saint or not. So it is a long, grueling process. Some saints did not become saints in the Catholic Church for hundreds of years, literally. That is their formal doctrine and teaching. And so when I, at age 19, I started reading the Bible, and then when I became a Christian, and I saw that in just about every epistle that the Apostle Paul wrote to fellow believers, one of the first things he says is he calls them saints. To the saints in Philippi, to the saints in Corinth, to the saints in Galatia, to the holy, what he was saying, to the holy ones. And he'd say the same thing today. If you are a Christian today, the Apostle Paul could legitimately say, to the saints or the holy ones at Grace Bible Fellowship. The ones who have been made holy by believing in Jesus Christ. And that's your status. Completely holy. Totally sinless. As God the Father looks down from heaven and looks at you in Christ, He sees no sin. 
totally forgiven, past, present, and future. That's an awesome truth. But those are the kind of people that God is using to build His church. It is redeemed people, those that He has saved. And Jesus warned us, and He told His apostles, I'm going to build my church, I'm going to do it with redeemed people, but I want you to know this truth, because you live in a sinful, fallen world, there will always be tares or weeds among the wheat. And Jesus referred to true believers as wheat, those which were healthy and productive. And he said, among the wheat, among believers, in the church, there will always be weeds. And some weeds really look like the plant that they're growing next to. Sometimes they're hard to distinguish. And Jesus said, you know what? Don't, don't go haphazardly trying to rip the weeds out of your church. Let the Holy Spirit and God take care of that. Because the Holy Spirit's still working on their heart until they breathe their last breath in this life to save them. But the point is, the true church is composed of redeemed, holy people. True believers. Uh, and I put a couple of points down there, sub-points that are good to think about. Uh, regarding this imagery of building, this building. That's the imagery he's using. If you look at 19 through 22, he says he's building the church. Uh, there's a foundation. When you build a building, you have a foundation. Hopefully it's a good one. And then you start building the walls. Verse 21, a building is going up. It's being constructed. This building happens to be, verse 21, a holy temple that God is building. So the people of God, the church is making up a living holy temple. In verse 22, for the purpose that God might dwell in this holy temple. That's awesome imagery. So he calls the church, oh, and another interesting term, look at verse 19. He tells Christians, Gentiles and Jews alike that believe in Christ, he calls them, you are God's household. The church is God's household. Literally, the emphasis on that you are God's family. If you're a part of the church, you are part of God's spiritual family. That talks about intimacy and relationship. That is awesome. Then he also talks about the fact that the church is a building, verse 21. And the specific building is a holy temple. What does holy temple emphasize? He says that the church is a holy temple. Well, the temple, that emphasized that worship goes on there. That's what the church is supposed to do. That's why they're supposed to be redeemed and believers. The church comes together corporately as a holy temple because what you do as a temple is you worship Almighty God, legitimately. And then the last metaphor he uses, not just a holy temple, but he says in verse 22 that God might dwell there, a dwelling place, a tabernacle for God. So the church is a dwelling place of God. Literally, uh, he's talking about how God literally dwells in your midst. When the church comes together, redeemed people come together, God dwells in our midst. Did you know that Jesus is here today? The Holy Spirit of Almighty God is here today? Directly in our midst. It's an awesome truth. But that's what the church is. And he says that every Christian... Uh, I put there is a heavenly brick or a heavenly stone that God is using one soul at a time as he continues to build his living church. And every Christian is indispensable because every Christian becomes a holy brick in that holy temple that God is building. And he's been building it for 2,000 years and he's going to continue to build his holy church one individual, one person at a time till Jesus returns to his completed, perfected bride, the church. An awesome truth. By the way, the church is still under construction. The church is not completed yet. The church is still immature. The church has weaknesses, yes. But just because the church has weaknesses doesn't mean that you can talk about Jesus' bride or his fiance in a negative manner. Every time the church is mentioned in the New Testament, it's mentioned in good terms. The church is called the pillar of God's truth. The church is called Christ's bride. And so it grieves me when I hear people or uh, Bible teachers even uh, taking pot shots at the church. I mean, I've heard statements like this. 
the church is dead in the Bay Area. I, mean, that, I heard that, that, that grieves me, that hurt. Or the church is dead in America. No, it's not. The church is Jesus' bride. That'd be like saying, your girlfriend is ugly. Yeah. Your wife is sick. Ooh, be careful. You're talking about Jesus' bride. But the point is, yeah, the church has weaknesses. The church is not totally mature. The church is still growing. Yes, because Jesus is still building it. It's not done yet. The church is still under construction. Go to number three. How does God build the church? Well, the foundation of the church has already been completed. That was very important. If you want a solid building, you've got to do it on a solid foundation. Jesus gave that illustration in Matthew 7. He said you can build on sand or you can build on stone. You can build on solid rock. And Jesus built his church on solid rock. He established the foundation. Yeah, the, the church body is still under construction, but the foundation has already been finished and totally completed. And Paul tell, tells us what that is. Uh, he says in verse 20, uh, God's household is being built. Verse 20, having been built, having past tense, having built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The foundation was already completed. And what was the foundation? The foundation was the apostles. Okay, it's talking about primarily the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. The 11 apostles, and then Matthias came along later. Not just the apostles, the early New Testament prophets who came after the apostles. The apostles and prophets were called and commissioned specifically by Jesus to lay the foundation of the church. The apostles and prophets had miracle abilities we don't have today. As a matter of fact, they had the gift of miracles. That was one of their qualifications. If you wanted to be an apostle, there were certain qualifications you needed to meet to be an apostle. Peter tells us what they are. Acts chapter 1. When Judas committed suicide and he needed to be replaced, and Peter said, according to the scriptures and according to Jesus, we need 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now we only got 11 because Judas killed himself. So according to scripture and the will of God, we need to replace Judas. And so we've got a handful of men who could be qualified, and Peter told us what the qualifications were. He said they had to have been around since the the ministry of John the Baptist. So in other words, they had to be an eyewitness of the earthly ministry of Jesus. Now, is is there anybody here on planet Earth today who was an eyewitness of the earthly ministry of Jesus? No. So therefore, no, there are not apostles. And also in the New Testament, it said they had to be witnesses of the resurrection, of the physical Christ. So there's two right there, qualifications. Then 2 Corinthians talks about another qualification is they had the ability to do signs, wonders, and miracles. And so it's amazing how you can go in the Christian bookstore today and pick up a book and then apostle so-and-so endorsed that book. There are men in the church saying that they are apostles, calling themselves apostles, saying we need apostles today. No, that's not the New Testament model. Uh, the foundation's already been laid. It is complete. That was the job of the apostles. The apostles came along first chronologically handpicked by the Lord Jesus Christ with a specific task to lay the foundation of the church to give us the full canon of the New Testament and Scripture. That job was completed, and with the death of John the, Baptist, uh, John the Apostle, there have not been apostles since then. And for 1,800 years, uh, pretty much the church agreed to that testimony. And it isn't until just recently in the 20th century where Christians started talking about the possibility of there being modern-day apostles. That is not consistent with what the New Testament teaches. It's not consistent with what Paul is saying here. The foundation was the apostles and the prophets. There's a lot of ways that the, the apostles can be considered the foundation of the church. I mean, when you th- first think of it and say, if you were to ask, who's the foundation of the church? Off the top of your head, you would want to say who? Jesus, right? If you're in Sunday school, that's the answer for everything. Jesus! <laughs> so then why is Paul saying, actually, the foundation of the church is the apostles and the prophets? That's kind of interesting. Well, one of the reasons, Acts chapter 1, I read it earlier. Acts chapter 1 said it referred to Jesus 
and the work that Jesus began to do and teach. And then he left. So he began the work of the church. But he commissioned the 12 apostles to finish the work that he began. And one of those things that he commissioned them to do was to lay the foundation once and for all. Now, when you build a house, how many times do you have to lay the foundation? Hopefully just one time, if you do it right. And that's what the apostles were. They laid the foundation the way Christ wanted them to lay it because he taught them for three and a half years personally and he guaranteed them saying, you will be successful. And I will use you men to lay the foundation of the church. And one of the key ways that the apostles laid the foundation of the church is go to Acts chapter 2 if you have your Bible. And in Acts chapter 2, if you don't, I'm just going to read it. I'm going to read verse 42 and following in Acts chapter 2. Here's the early church getting together, all these saints, 3,000 people. What were they doing? What makes a church a church? How do you define a church? What, what makes a legitimate church? Well, yeah, you need, you need a multitude of believers or a number of believers, right? You need Christ's presence. But it's not just... We're not talking about a Bible study because there is something very specific called the church in the New Testament. Uh, but here are some key components in the church of what makes a church a church. It's not exhaustive, but here's some key ones that you need to call yourself a church and not just a social club or a country club. Here's the distinctives. Verse 42. The saints who were a part of the church were continually devoting themselves. What's the first thing? To the apostles' teaching. The apostles' doctrine. That's one of the main ingredients for what makes a church a church. What is that? That is the New Testament. That's 27 books of the New Testament that Jesus commissioned the apostles to write down. He said that. In John 14 and in John 16, Jesus called his 12 apostles together, knowing that Judas was going to be a betrayer, and he promised them. And he said, okay, guys, I am leaving. Now, I know that makes you sad, but don't fret, because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit in my place, and when he comes, he's going to comfort you. He will not leave you as orphans, and he is going to teach you everything I want you to know. And he's going to bring back to remembrance everything I ever taught you in a supernatural way. And then the Lord Jesus commissioned apostles and their associates, literally, to write down these truths. And that's how we ended up with the 27 books of the New Testament. That is the apostles' doctrine. That is one of the most important things about the foundation of the church. What is the foundation of the church? It is the foundation of biblical truth that came from the Lord Jesus himself through his apostles. And it was completed. It was done. That's why we don't need 28 books in our New Testament. We've got 27. It is totally complete, totally sufficient to meet all of our needs. Well, what about the gospel of Judas? Have you been hearing that, Lisa? Did you know that they discovered, I guess, the gospel of Judas? Yeah. And I'm thinking, the gospel of Judas? You mean the, the most heinous, despicable human being in the history of the universe? Why would I care what Judas had to say? And gospel means good news. He can't possibly have any good news. This is a recent discussion going on that we're supposed to get interested in. Well, what about the gospel of Judas? Well, there isn't one. We have 27 books of the New Testament. Uh, the apostles completed their job. They were the foundation. It was a packed, past completed action laid a solid foundation, and now all God is doing through individual people as he saves them one at a time as he's building his holy temple called the church, which will come to fruition and total completion on Jesus' wedding day someday in the future when he comes to meet his bride. Now, point number two in verse 20, if you go back to Ephesians, well, I said the apostles when the prophets laid the foundation, but Jesus has his proper place because Jesus is central when it comes to the church. And as a matter of fact, Jesus is a part of the foundation because it says the church is being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Note this, 
Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Do you know what a cornerstone was in Paul's day? A cornerstone, it was the most important part of the foundation. It was the biggest part of the foundation. It was the first piece set down in the foundation. And everything else, every other brick, two by four, whatever they used, had to be in perfect, uh, perfect, complete alignment with the chief cornerstone that went down. It was the plumb line for everything else in that construction of that building. That's what Jesus is. So Jesus is the foundation of the foundation. He's the one that trained the apostles. He is the most important. He is preeminent in the church. He is perfect. He is awesome. People say, well, what would Jesus do? Well, it's it's not what would Jesus do. It's what did Jesus do? What would Jesus say? It's not what would Jesus say. It's what did Jesus say? It's right here. What did Jesus do? What did Jesus say? So that's W-W... What is that? What did Jesus do? That's a different acronym. But anyway... It's important to keep in mind. He told us. And we can't always say, what would Jesus do? Because you know what? Sometimes we would be wrong. Did you know that Jesus might actually do something that would surprise us? Or he'd actually do something we wouldn't think he would do? That's kind of a scary question. What would Jesus do? Maybe we don't want to find out. Because he might take a whip and start whipping people. So we don't know. But we do know what he did and what he said. And that's reliable and that's the foundation. And Jesus Christ himself is the cornerstone of the foundation. By the way, speaking of Roman Catholicism, and this is just a true story, because I know we have some former Catholics here in our midst, and I grew up as a Catholic, um, and this is a true story. For 18 years, I was taught a song, and it went like this. Peter built the church. I'm not gifted at singing. Peter built the church on the rock of our faith. (laughs) Peter built his church on the rock of our faith. That's what I was taught for 18 years, and I sang it, believed it. And then when I became a Protestant... You guys had the words wrong. You were saying, and Jesus built the church on the rock of our... Jesus built the church. I thought that was weird. No, it's Peter. I want to tell everyone, no, it was Peter. But I think that's important in light of what Paul says. No, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. It is his church. He's the one that's building it. He's building it on his foundation, and he's building it on the foundation that he himself prepared through men, the apostles. Okay, let's go on. The foundation of the church already been completed. Very important for us. And then finally, number four. Paul goes on as he's using this metaphor of building the church with redeemed people through Christ Jesus the Lord and the revelation of the apostles and prophets that he gave us so we know how to do it the right way. By the way, that's, that's our church, church growth manual right here. The book of Acts, actually Matthew all the way to Revelation. This is how to build a church. This is how to do church growth. Uh, number four, church growth is promoted when there is true unity in the Spirit. That's, I'm referring to the Holy Spirit there because that's what Paul is talking about. So he goes back to Ephesians 2 and he says, uh, So Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, verse 21, in whom the whole building, and he's talking about every Christian, is being fitted together. And he's talking about these stones. Every Christian is a stone, but every Christian is a, a, a rugged, rough-cut hewn stone. We, we, we are stones, but we are rough, we are ragged, we have jagged edges. We need some smoothing, don't we? I know I do. And that's what sanctification is. During our life, after we get saved, Jesus needs to hammer away with a chisel on every one of us to smooth us out so that he can take this stone and put it next to this stone so it fits tightly. By the way, that's how they built the temple in the Old Testament. They didn't have mortar like we do today. How convenient to get some cement, put some bricks that are all crooked and misaligned and you know, slop it over and put a little more uh, mortar on there to cover up your mistakes. That's what we do. In New Testament times, in the days of the Apostle Paul, they didn't have mortar. 
If you wanted to build a facility out of rock, you had to have every stone had to be perfectly fine-tuned, sanded, chiseled down, smooth, so that there could be a tight fit next to one another. And that's what God is doing with the church. He's taking a whole bunch of people with a whole bunch of ragged edges and trying to get them all to fit together. And it's hard because we are sinful people, aren't we? So he's got to hammer away a little more with his chisel. With a little, oh, here's a little suffering. Bam! And a little this. And a little, as he's trying to fine to us and sanctify us in the Christian life so that we can fit together in this building that he calls the Holy Temple, which is the Church of God. And this is an ongoing process. So he's trying to bring unity. I mean, think about unity. God is trying to bring unity to people so they can be a part of the same entity, the same family. It's, it's kind of hard. It's a great challenge. It's a monumental challenge to take two people with totally different backgrounds that on a human level should totally hate each other and despise one another and then bring them together and wed them together intimately into one family unit. That is an impossible task, but that is what God is doing with the church. We have that represented right here. We have different backgrounds, different belief systems, different histories, different legacies. Yet because of our common profession in Christ, God is bringing us together, knitting us together, building us together, chiseling us together, trying to bring unity together through the work of His Holy Spirit. And I just think of the 11 apostles. There were two guys that never should have gotten along. There's two guys that never should have been allowed in the same room together. There was Simon the Zealot, a Jewish zealot. He was a nationalist for the nation of Israel. He believed in long, sharp swords. Off with his head! He believed about Roman soldiers. And anybody that would uh, partake with any venture in the Roman army or the Roman government or anything that was not Jewish, literally, he was a zealot. He killed people for a living or for a hobby. Who knows? If they weren't fulfilling the Jewish cause. And Jesus says, hey, I'll take that guy to be one of my disciples. Oh, that's kind of risky. And then there's another guy, Matthew, Levi, the tax collector, the traitor, the compromiser, the sellout for a lot of money, forgetting his Israelite Jewish heritage so that he can go to the Romans and work for them and steal taxes from everybody because he's going to get a whole bunch of cash. Matthew, that's what Matthew was. He was a traitor to the nation of Israel. So the people that Simon, Simon the Zealot hated the most were people like Matthew, Jewish tax collectors for the nation of Rome. And Jesus says, hey, I'll take that guy, Matthew the tax collector. Hey, you know what? And I'll have supper together with these guys. Hey, we'll all become one team with one common cause. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. You should be laughing. That's true, Janine. I agree with you. It's, it's unthinkable. It would only, it, the only thing that could make that work would be the supernatural uh, work of God, and that's exactly what it was, and that's what it takes. What does it take uh, for a zealot who is into killing people who aren't Jewish and another guy who's stealing people for money for a living, abandoning his own heritage? It takes a change of heart. It's a change on the inside, and that's what Jesus said he was going to do. You know what? I'm going to save these sinners. I'm going to change them from the inside out. Not only that, I'm going to bring them together as one so that they will be serving in a unified cause and purpose. And that is exactly what Jesus did with the 12 apostles. He used to bicker and fight all the time about where they were going to sit at the last supper of the Lord Jesus in heaven and fighting about all kinds of other things. Who was the greatest in the kingdom? Fighting and bickering, but after the resurrection, after Jesus sent out his Holy Spirit, there was an unbelievable unity and affinity that these 11 men had together, serving their cause, serving their purpose, and every person that joins the church, that's God's intent for them as well, and so that when he saves you, when you become a Christian, he puts the Holy Spirit of God in you and in me to soften me, to change us, to bring a supernatural unity so that we will be serving 
in the church of God together, regardless of our background or our former allegiances, all to the glory of God to fulfill his purpose. That is how God builds his church. It is through supernatural unity in the Holy Spirit. Verse 22, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Holy Spirit. That's God's desire. That's awesome. That is an awesome truth. And thankfully, that's what God has done today in our very midst. He's taken a whole bunch of people, a whole bunch of sinners, brought them together. Their common allegiance is to the Lord Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection on our behalf, and we put profession of faith in Him. He's given us of His Spirit, and today we can worship the same God in the same way and continue to fulfill a united message. And that's going out and being representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's how God builds the church. It's exciting to be a part of it. And uh, let's just continue to pray for Grace Bible Fellowship that God would keep us on the straight and narrow, following His model and the leading of His Holy Spirit, dependent upon Him in all ways and through prayer, so that He can accomplish His will through us. Let's go ahead and pray. If you could bow your head and close your eyes where you are. Thank God for our time together. God, I do thank you for today, the Lord's Day. Every Lord's Day is an opportunity to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, thank you for your promise that you were going to build the church and that hell itself would not overcome it. So you guaranteed victory. Thank you for saving individual people, one person at a time, to add them to your spiritual building called the church. Thank you, Lord, that the church can be a holy temple where we can worship you and where the Spirit of God can literally reside. Remind us of these great truths because it gives us much more to be thankful for this week. And I just commit all things to you and pray in Christ's name. Amen.